Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello. My name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome to Pax Britannica, episode 39, City on a Hill. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we covered the broad strokes of the historiography of the period, the Whigs, the Marxists, the Revisionists, and those that followed. We also looked at the financial and political reforms which Charles began to implement in the early years of his personal rule. Notably absent from that episode was any discussion of the religious aspects of the new regime. In spring 1629, a libelous pamphlet was posted on St. Paul's Cross in the centre of London. It attacked Charles for his dissolution of Parliament, for tolerating and supporting heresy, and in so doing, abandoning the true religion. He had dispersed Parliament and imprisoned its members merely for trying to purge and reform the Commonwealth of idolatry. For these sins, Charles was, quote, therefore no king, nor they any longer his subjects. This was one of many such attacks, posted all across London over these few months. One, left at the door of the Dean of St Paul's Cathedral, accused Bishop Lord of being the fountain of all wickedness, while another had been posted at the Exchange, built by the Earl of Salisbury during the reign of James. This one attacked the Episcopacy, the bishops, as treasonous evil workers for the popish infidels' church's cause, and who wanted to have the English Protestants more and more impoverished, weakened, and disabled. These were just the views of a minority, a particularly vocal minority, but a minority nonetheless. They could be safely dismissed as the rantings of lunatics, and indeed one of the authors was tracked down and imprisoned in Bedlam. Yet, they were a dangerous and worrying example of dissent right at the heart of one of Charles's kingdoms. 
As you might have worked out from the incredibly subtle messages of these tracts, their problem was with the Caroline regime's approach to religion. Up to this point in Pax Britannica, I've avoided using the term Puritan too much, preferring reformist or separatist to describe the hotter sort of Protestant. From here on, though, Puritan will pop up more and more as a useful shorthand. But remember that the Puritans themselves rarely called themselves Puritan. It started as an insult used by their enemies. They preferred to refer to themselves as the godly, or, for those particularly confident in their salvation, the elect. It's difficult to fault contemporaries for worrying about the religious tendencies of their king. His queen was a Catholic princess, and her entourage was mostly Catholic, both English and French. After her mother, Marie de' Medici, was exiled to the Spanish Netherlands, Henrietta Maria was feared to be bending her husband's ear towards closer friendship with Spain. More on this shortly. Her spectacular private chapel became a beacon for English Catholics, and hundreds flocked to worship there. It certainly didn't help matters when the Pope sent agents to Charles's court on the apparent belief that he could be converted. They didn't achieve this, but they lobbied for greater toleration, and their own premises became havens for English Catholics to worship. Many of Charles's Privy Council were openly Catholic or crypto-Catholic. The Earl of Portland, who we met last time and who was the Lord Treasurer until his death in 1635, was widely suspected of being a papist, and indeed, he openly converted on his deathbed. The Chancellor of the Exchequer, Francis Cottington, was in Spain regularly, and similarly converted on his deathbed in 1641. The Secretary of State was known to protect Catholic priests from official reprimand, and he too converted before he died in 1646. These were just the secular ministers, and if we want to talk about the church, then we have to talk about William Lord. Lord had no shortage of enemies. Aside from George Abbott, the Archbishop of Canterbury, his other major rival was John Williams, the future Archbishop of York. Their enmity came from internal church and court politics, which I won't get into, but from 1623 they had been bitter opponents. It didn't help that Williams was far more lenient towards Puritans than Lord. Williams would be Lord's boogeyman. He literally had regular nightmares about the guy, and the paranoia that Williams was plotting against him would forever worm at Lord. In 1630, Lord was elected Chancellor of Oxford, which seems to have come as a shock. He had supported Portland for the position, but a group of dons took the initiative and backed the bishop. Within a year, three fellows of the university broke the ban on preaching about predestination. A royal proclamation had barred any discussion on the topic, regardless of the position put forward, as being disruptive to the peace of the church. Of course, it was enforced laxly for some, and strictly for others, but still. The matter led to a hearing, which the king attended, which entirely vindicated Lord's position. As Chancellor, Lord instituted several reforms to the university, including founding a new chair of Arabic. In 1633, Lord would be appointed 
Archbishop of Canterbury on the death of his longtime enemy, George Abbott. It was Lord's policy towards the Church of England which concerned many of the hotter sort of Protestants. If the Church had more power, he told Charles at one point, the King might have more both obedience and service. The two worked well together, and despite what contemporaries believed, not all religious policy came from Lord. The King, as Supreme Governor, believed that reforms that came from him would be better received, while Lord was just happy to have a royal human shield to take some of the flack. There were many reforms which Lord did hope to enforce. Anthony Milton, in his biography of Lord, recounts how he kept a list in his diary of things which I have projected to do if God bless me in them. These all centred around increasing the wealth and the authority of the church, though he did not spare his fellow clergy when they fell short of his expectations. Through the Court of High Commission, the bishops of Chester, Gloucester and Lincoln, held then by his enemy, John Williams, were sanctioned and humiliated for failing to enforce his policies. In particular, corrupt Irish bishops were a nuisance. But it was the hotter sort of Protestants, the Calvinists or the Puritans, who took their place firmly in Lord and Charles's sights. Calvinists tended to oppose many of the policies which Lord and Charles believed the Church of England needed. Charles shared his father's love for bishops, seeing them as a necessary instrument of royal policy. Calvinists were against the episcopacy because it wasn't in the Bible. Lord ordered the renovation and restoration of many church buildings, returning them to places of beauty. Stained glass was returned to windows, statues reappeared, and murals were painted over whitewashed walls. Ceremony returned to Church of England services, priests wore the surplice, and the communion table was to be moved out at the central aisle, railed off, and covered in a cloth. For Lord, this was about showing due respect to worship, and strengthening the high church, the hierarchy, ceremony, and the prestige of the Church of England. Calvinists saw all of this as a step backwards, as a step towards papist idolatry, not just unnecessary to the true religion, but a bastardization of what the Reformation had been about. Lordianism, the term attributed to Lord's theological position, was anti-predestination. Calvinist orthodoxy insisted that there was an elect, chosen by God to be saved, and everyone else would be damned. This had worrying implications. Not only did it consign the bulk of the population to damnation, regardless of their acts in life, but those who believed themselves to be among the elect could act however they wished. Possibly more important for Charles and Lord was that if salvation and damnation were completely out of anyone's control but God, then what was the point of the church? If predestination was accepted as true, then the role of the clergy in shepherding their flocks to salvation was redundant. In purely political terms, this would weaken a central pillar of royal government. Theologically, if predestination wasn't true, as Lord and Charles believed, then those arguing for it were putting souls at risk through false belief. This is all to say that, in matters of religion, 
These were not solely academic disputes. These had serious consequences, both in this world and the next. Now, there were fears, as we talked about earlier, that the king was being led astray by his councillors, especially when there was no parliament to speak for the commonwealth of the kingdom. Henrietta Maria was suspected of being a champion of Spain. Now, her mother was in Spanish care. She was nothing of the sort, and in fact was the bitter rival of the Earl of Portland, who was the real champion of Spain at court. The Queen, rather than being the enemy of English Protestants, instead allied with those Protestants at court, including the Earls of Northumberland and Holland. These aristocrats were pushing for a parliament in order to fund a return to war against the Habsburgs. Regarding the charge that Lord was an Arminian, which was a Dutch heresy, while Lord did protect and support Arminians, I've not seen anything to prove he was, without a doubt, actually an Arminian, and he repeatedly swore he was not, but whether or not he was is irrelevant to the fact that many vocal opponents believed that he was. He claimed to enforce policies against Puritanism and anti-Arminianism because he saw it as a threat to the established church, which did share some Arminian tenets, not because of any love of Arminianism itself. Catholics were simply not seen as a threat in the same way by the court. Half of them were Catholic, after all. This double standard rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. Here were good, godly men and women being punished for fighting for the true faith. And yet Catholics could practice and preach in the capital, with officialdom giving them a wink and a nod. It was infuriating, and for many people, this was a sign that the Church of England was not only under bad management, but it was straying from the path of the Reformation. It didn't help that Lord and Charles never doubted their own Protestantism. They weren't quasi-Catholics, and so they never felt the need to adequately explain their actions or otherwise alleviate the worries of their English subjects. They were right, the people complaining were wrong, and that was the end of it. But it wasn't the end of it. Thousands of people would look at the Church of England under Charles and see it as the first steps of a resurgent Catholicism. God's displeasure with the regime seemed apparent. England's traditionally dominant industry, textiles, had suffered a recession, which led to a spike in unemployment between 1629 and 1631. Plague resurfaced again and again, while harvests were either below average or failed entirely from 1629 until 1639. There were plenty of real explanations for these events, and many of them were out of Charles's control. To contemporaries, there were much simpler explanations. Puritans blamed Charles's rule for these signs of divine displeasure, while the regime blamed religious dissidents for undermining peace and stability. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As we covered in episode 34, the Massachusetts Bay Colony had been established as the 1620s became the 1630s. In contrast to Plymouth Colony, which, as Richard Middleton puts it, had few ambitions other than to survive and worship in their own fashion, the Massachusetts Bay Company was to be a city on a hill, to set an example to the world. We left John Winthrop as he and his party founded the settlement of Boston. Boston wasn't the only settlement established by this expedition, as there simply weren't enough resources for everyone. Groups as small as single families applied for a grant from the council, chose a minister, and set up new communities all across the bay. The local Native Americans had not recovered from the diseases of the last few decades, and were persuaded, or forced, to accept the new arrivals. There were still deaths among the colonists from exposure and disease, but the Massachusetts settlers had several advantages over their colonial predecessors. Firstly, they had colonial predecessors. They knew from their experience the very real danger of unpreparedness, and so arrived with every possible tool and supply they could need. The climate was also in their favour. For starters, Massachusetts wasn't as swampy as Virginia, Also, they'd arrived in the spring, and so had time to prepare for winter, unlike their neighbours at Plymouth ten years prior. These neighbours were yet another advantage that the MBC could call on, and they could rely on their support. By the end of 1630, over a thousand people were spread across eleven towns, and over the next ten years, more than ten thousand people would migrate to New England, settling in existing communities or forming their own colonies. This was the Great Migration. Each of these towns was allowed to govern itself as it wished, provided it didn't violate the overarching laws of the colony. Most towns elected a committee to handle financial matters and arbitrate between townsmen. This was particularly important when it came to land distribution, as the General Court of the MBC granted each town their allotted territory as corporate entities. Then it was up to the towns themselves to distribute this land among its members. Often we see the hierarchy of Old England recreated in the New, as gentlemen like John Winthrop received significantly larger parcels of land than their lower status co-religionists. Importantly, not all land was immediately divided. There simply wasn't enough manpower to work it. Instead, towns tended to keep the remaining acres in common to be dished out when needed. Town meetings were usually held twice a year to handle internal business and elect representatives to the general court. The general court was a body made up of the shareholders, or free men, of the colony, which initially included only a minority of adult male colonists. The first general meeting of the company since leaving England was held in October 1630. Governor Winthrop engineered two changes to the operation of the colony, 
The first, that these freemen would elect assistants, who would be the only people who could elect the governor and his deputy. The second granted the governor the right to make and enforce laws, which was a significant boost to the authority of the position. After this meeting, in October 1630, Winthrop would rule the colony for a year and a half without calling another meeting of the general court. During this uh, personal rule, Winthrop levied contributions on the towns of the MBC without their consultation. The more things change. The towns protested this arbitrary rule because the colonial charter stipulated that the governor could not levy taxes. Winthrop caved and allowed the towns to dispatch two representatives to the general court, which would meet once a year to discuss taxation. The general court also secured the right of the electorate to choose the governorship. Still, dissatisfaction with Winthrop remained, and demands for more regular meetings of the general court were made, until, in May 1634, matters came to a head. You see, Winthrop still held sole possession of the colonial charter, and was reluctant to let others read it. His reluctance appeared to be justified when the general court demanded to see it, and discovered that Winthrop had been acting outside of the governor's jurisdiction. The charter clearly stated that the general court, not the governor, had the right to levy taxation, pass laws, and distribute land. In the subsequent election for the governorship, once all of this was unearthed, Winthrop would be defeated. Due to practical reasons, the franchise was extended to all male adults, who were also members of the church, and the town representatives would be able to discuss matters beyond simply taxation. The colony had grown too much and spread too far for all freemen to attend every meeting. The general court was suddenly something approaching representative government, and it would survive until the end of the century. One of the requirements of the right to vote was, like I said, to be a member of the church. No big deal, you might be thinking, just join the church. Except, it wasn't as simple as that. For the Puritans, to be a member of the church required a member of the community to pass four distinct phases of sanctification in order to become one of the godly, or rather, to prove that they already were. First, they had to acknowledge that only God could save a person's immortal soul. No earthly means could alter their fate, and only God could judge. Second, they had to show that they truly wished to be saved. Thirdly, they had to convince a panel of church members that they had been visited by the Holy Spirit. This could be a bit tricky, as you might imagine. If they'd managed to do so, then they reached the fourth stage sanctification. This indicated that they were of the elect. They were God's chosen. Only members of the church, those who had gone through this process, could hold office or vote in the MBC. This was to shield the fledgling city on a hill from the sinful natures of the unelect in the colony, be they servants who had little choice but to follow their masters, settlers who had arrived for base financial motivations, or other members of the community who failed to live up to the moral standards of the Puritans. These moral standards were enforced by law. 
gambling, drinking, sexual misbehaviour, and other earthly vices were outlawed, while church attendance was compulsory. This last bit is another similarity between the New England Puritans and the regime they had hated so much. Whether the Massachusetts Bay Colony was a theocracy is something of a debate, but many of its early preachers proudly claimed as much, even if ministers were specifically banned from holding political office. Punishments for these moral crimes were inflicted according to biblical law, not English common law, and the whole enterprise was envisioned as a project in founding a godly society. The church and state were intertwined, inseparable, in a way, again, not dissimilar to England. As Middleton puts it, the church existed to enunciate the moral law, the state to enforce it. The explosion of population cannot be explained solely through migration, though that was a huge part of it. One significant difference between the colonies of the MBC and those of Virginia, Barbados, or other purely commercial colonies was demographic. By and large, those who made the journey to settle in New England came as families. Virginia de John Anderson's fantastic book, New England's Generation, highlights that the typical migrant family was complete, but not completed. As in, they were made up of a husband, a wife, and one or more children. But the parents were still young enough to reproduce. There are many cases of multiple generations of the same family migrating as one. What was more, the demographics of the unmarried were much more evenly distributed between male and female than other colonies such as Virginia. In Virginia, women were said to be scarcer than corn or liquor. Professor Anderson quips that, if that was the case, then they were more abundant than Bibles in New England. Virginia had four or five men for every woman, a serious bottleneck in population growth. In New England, they were roughly half and half, a situation much more in line with old England, and a firm foundation for the demographic boom of the next ten years. Financially, the colony would only have a steady source of income after events entirely outside of their control, namely the explosion of the population of the English West Indies. These tiny islands cultivated a variety of New World products, including tobacco, and their indentured labourers needed feeding. Over the next decade or so, sugarcane would arrive in Barbados and would turn the tiny island into a commercial hub, increasingly fuelled by the labour of enslaved Africans. The Leeward Isles, and eventually Jamaica, would follow this same path to financial dominance through sugar and enslaved labour. The New England colonies slotted into their place in this English Atlantic world through their fishing industry, which gave the region the financial sustainability it desperately needed. At this stage, then, it's important to see the mainland American colonies as islands in an English archipelago which spread across the Atlantic. All this land, and all these people, meant that soon the Massachusetts Bay Colony outgrew itself. Next week, we will see the unity of the colony fracture as New England 
yet again mirrored the old. Theological disputes and the question of what was the true religion will shatter this uniformity. Thank you to my entire House of Lords, particularly the King's favourite, Andrew Shoemaker, the Royal Headsman, executed today, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, the Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Marquess of Hereford, Christopher Remo, the Marquess of Queensbury, Brent Sitz. Since last episode, the peerage has expanded, and now please welcome the Earl of Northumbria, Tim, the Earl of Gloucester, John Nielsen, the Earl of Norfolk, Ross Templeton, and Lord Jackson, Baron Sam Jackson. Also, the Baron Macross has been promoted to the Viscount of Macross. If you want to join their ranks, just go to patreon.com slash Pax Britannica. Every patron gets an ad-free feed, which you can put into any podcatcher. Alternatively, if you want to support Pax Britannica without spending any money, please consider recommending it to a friend, or sharing it on Facebook or Twitter, or particularly Reddit. Just earlier today, I saw someone recommending Pax Britannica on our history, which was amazing. You know who you are. Thank you so much for that. That makes my day. And, as always, reviews are so welcome. They are such a treat to read. The intermission music in today's episode was provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again to my entire House of Lords and to you for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.